The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And there was a lot going on in technology yet again. Uh, Bitcoin is in the news. It actually has reached the soaring value of $48,000. And uh, a lot of the banks are jumping in and companies are jumping in to invest in Bitcoin. You could buy it at 7-Eleven. Apparently there are Bitcoin machines at 7-Eleven now. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Uh, I'm going to talk about the iPhone virtual track mode, uh, trackpad mode. It's a very neat way to move the cursor around when you're when you're trying to write stuff on your iPhone or your iPad. I just discovered that this uh, this week. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, the fact there was a court ruling that said that border agents have the right to search your cell phone when you come into the country. That's a contested case. They overturned a lower court uh, decision there. This week, we're going to feature Gladys May West. She is uh, a person who accurately computed the shape of the Earth uh, and the actual trajectories of satellites, and her data was instrumental in making GPS an accurate system. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from uh, Jim in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the most good-natured Mr. Big Voice. How does he know? I have no idea. <laughs> I think he's making a presumption there, Jim. Right. You don't have to work <laughs> now, with this here's, guy. Here's another IT pioneer that Tech Talk might consider for a feature, uh, Profiles in IT. Gladys May West, the hero beh- behind the system that billions of people rely on. Jim, you are exactly right. That was a great suggestion. So I made her the profile NIT feature this week. And on another note, uh, Bob in Maryland said, I ran across an article about how much cryptocurrency miners, how much power they're consuming to verify the distributed ledger. I mean, the amount of power they consume is almost destructive. All your best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob... um, that crypto mining uh, power usage is quite significant. It's used for both running the computers as well as for cooling, and it takes a huge amount of processing power to verify that ledger. People at University of Cambridge did an analysis of the power that all the people around the world are using to mine cryptocurrency, and they discovered that they're using 121 terawatt hours a year. 
that's as much energy as the entire country of of Argentina uses for an entire year. And that's just for crypto mining. And it's only getting worse. Overall estimates show that Bitcoin accounts for 0.56% of the world's energy consumption. It's really a... (laughs) a staggering amount of energy that's being used by these Bitcoin miners. Now, Jim, you were probably wondering what countries are most popular for mining Bitcoin. And I'm here to tell you. Yes, you are. Number number one country, Kuwait. Who would have guessed that? Now, the reason Kuwait is popular is that they've got extremely cheap electricity because they've got so much oil for their power plants. In Kuwait, you can mine a single Bitcoin for $1,983. That's the cheapest cost of mining in the world. The next country that's popular for Bitcoin mining is Georgia. That was formerly, not the state of Georgia, but the country that was formerly in the Soviet Union. Georgia is rich in hydroelectric power and natural gas, therefore low electricity prices. The price of mining a single Bitcoin in Georgia is $3,300. Iceland is very popular. It's got almost everything. It's got cheap electricity. It's got a cold climate, so you don't have to spend so much on cooling. And it's got favorable regulations. Iceland-based Bitcoin miners pay an average of $4,700 for each Bitcoin that they mine. And that basically is an you know energy cost. The next country, you would never guess, Estonia. Really? <laughs> Estonia has tried to position itself as an internet first country. Elect- electricity costs are the lowest of all the countries in Europe. Plus it has very cold winters to mitigate demand for, demand for cooling. Now in Estonia, a single Bitcoin costs $5,500 to mine. Canada. I'm surprised Canada's on the list. I wouldn't have expected them to have such cheap power. Well, Canada, the, you know, the northern portions of Canada uh, are very cold. So that means there's less cooling is required. But also the northern reaches of Canada have a lot of hydroelectric power. So it's cheap power up there. So they got cold and cheap power, a good combination. So in Canada, it's $3,900 to mine a Bitcoin. And the last place is Venezuela on the list. Venezuela, I don't think I'd want to go down there. They got all kinds of issues with violence. Yeah, that's the other it problem. It turns out, yeah, I mean, I would, if I were going to go do Bitcoin mining, I would definitely not go to Venezuela. Now, here's the thing uh, that's amazing. Because Bitcoin, because power is so cheap down there, because the power is subsidized by the government, you can mine a Bitcoin in Venezuela for only $531. Let's go. It's the cheapest place to mine a Bitcoin, Jim. But I think we should plan a trip. Yeah, but it's it could be a bit a bit dangerous. Yeah. Now the thing that's ridiculous about this Bitcoin mining, I mean. I mean, essentially, they're, 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 they're going through a mathematical calculation to verify a ledger, and it's getting increasingly more difficult to do that as the ledgers get bigger and as the rules change and as the number of Bitcoins released is reduced. Uh, 
they uh, they do all this calculation and it just takes a lot a lot of power and they're creating bitcoins that only have value because people say they have value it's kind of like when the indians used to trade polished shells they only had value in commerce because people said they had value but they were just polished shells shells bitcoins just a bunch of zeros and ones but people say it has value because they value it therefore it does have value so it's a it's an interesting uh, interesting thing to watch this whole bitcoin phenomenon so you can c compare those prices with what i said earlier and i'll get into the details of it bitcoins are now going for forty eight thousand dollars a bitcoin mm. now let me tell you the cheapest way to, to do to uh mine a bitcoin jim uh you basically create malware and you secretly put it on computers of your victims. The malware does Bitcoin calculations in the background using the power of the infected computer. And there's a huge amount of Bitcoin mining malware out there that are using the computing power of thousands of people to compute Bitcoins. And the value of those Bitcoins goes to the people who have created the malware and it doesn't cost them a penny because they're using the electricity of the infected machines. That's why there's so much Bitcoin mining malware out there. Okay, that was a great email, uh, Bob. I really enjoyed that topic on Bitcoin. We got an email from Joy in Ashburn. Dear Doc and Jim, uh, I have an old, uh, I've got an old Asus ZenBook with Windows 10. There's one thing about it that irritates me. The power button on this laptop is located on the keyboard, and it looks just like a regular key. In fact, it's located where most keyboards would have their delete key. And I keep hitting that thing, thinking I want to delete something, and then I turn off the computer. It is so annoying. Is there any way to just disable that power key on this Asus ZenBook? Well, it is uh, that, I mean, the, the, the power button on the ZenBook is really in a bad place, and a lot of people are frustrated with it. Uh, I don't know why they would make the power button look just like a regular key, but uh, somehow they thought that would be a nice idea. But it's easy to fix it. You can disable that power button. What you want to do is uh, you simply, down in the lower right-hand corner of your Windows screen, you'll see a, a picture there of a battery. Uh, that that's when it's either charging or not charging. Just right click on that battery and you'll and then you'll uh, and then you'll that this down in the notifications area and a little screen will come up. Click on power options, then click on change what the power buttons do. And then there'll be a drop down menu what the power buttons could do. They could put it in sleep mode. They could turn it off or you could ask them to do nothing. So simply in the drop-down menu, say, do nothing, and then save the changes. So at that point, that power button will do nothing when you press it, and you won't be turning off your computer. Now, the problem is you won't have a power button for the computer to turn it off, but, you know, maybe you leave it on all the time anyway. Anyway, that was a good question, and that button in that location has bothered me, too, on many occasions. We got an email from Carol in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk. My, pa my father passed away a while back. He wanted me to have two large boxes of VHS tapes. 
which had home videos and family recordings. He had been saving them. They were his pride and joy. Is there any way that I can get these transferred to a DVD so they're accessible? Now, I do have a DVD burner, and I've got a working VCR, and I just want to find a way to go from VCR to DVD. Well, uh, Carol, you can do that. Your easiest bet is to get a VHS to digital converter. And what that's going to do, it's going to take, uh, it'll be a little box that plugs into your VCR, and then, and then there will be a, a connection that goes to your computer. And it comes, and it would come with software, so that when it gets to the computer, it's it's actually converted to an MP4 file or whatever file format you select, and then it you can save the document on either a DVD or on the hard drive. Now, the uh, that device, what you'd want to get uh, there, there's one that's called the VidBox Video Conver Conversion Kit for PC. 2020. It's only $59 on Amazon. I checked it out this morning, and it sounds to me like that's going to be your best deal. Now, if you wanted to have a turnkey operation, you could get a big box that had both the VHS player and the DVD player in the same box, and it would and you could use it to copy from VHS to DVD all internally within the box. The trouble is those are darned expensive. I looked at those on uh, on Amazon. And they range from six hundred to nine hundred dollars, and I just, I just don't think it's worth it for your case. Now, if you just want to do the easiest way, you could send it off and have somebody. You could have one of these services do the conversion for you. And I, I checked up, I checked out a, a quite a few of these uh, systems, uh, the services that they have on the internet, and. Uh, and I've and one that was kind of interesting, Legacy Box. They've advertised a lot. I just said, okay, what would be the price there? And for 20 tapes, uh, you, they'll convert 20 tapes to DVD for $260. And if you have more tapes, the, the price per tape goes down. So you could do it that way. But I'm thinking since you sort of want to do it on the cheap, your best bet is to get that $59 uh, converter that I talked about, the VidBox video conversion for PC. We got an email from John in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I bought a PC recently be because it has features on it that my Mac doesn't. Now, one of the functions I constantly used on my Mac was the Mac's handoff feature. Now, what's nice is Mac has a handoff feature, so you could copy something into the clipboard, and you can hand it off, say, to your iPhone. And then you could paste it from the clipboard in the iPhone. Or you could hand it off to the iPad. And this handoff feature allowed you to share documents very easily with the Mac. Well, there's no handoff feature when you go Mac to PC. And it turns out, actually, as you would expect, uh, Apple and Windows really don't cooperate very much. They just, I don't know, they just don't like each other. So there's no way, to, there's no integrated way to do a handoff from the from your iPhone to your Mac. Now, fortunately, there is a third-party app called Magic Copy. Magic Copy, and you can uh, install Magic Copy on both your PC as well as your iPhone. You copy it to Magic Copy, copy it to the clipboard, bring up Magic Copy. Magic Copy will put it into the cloud. 
you go over to the other device, open up Magic Copy, and you can paste it in directly from Magic Copy. So you can basically get all the features that you want um, without handoff using Magic Copy. It, it, the app is free, but there are going to be uh, paid extensions for it that'll make it more, more complete and maybe without ads. We got an email from Doug in St. Louis. Dear Tech Doc, I've got smart devices all over the house, like Amazon Alexis in almost every room. Are these devices listening to me? Should I be concerned about my privacy? Doug in St. Louis. Well, Doug, smart speakers like Amazon Echo and, not, and Google's Nest Mini do make life easier. I love them. But it's not really as scary as it sounds. When people hear that the smart speakers are listening, uh, what they're afraid of is that the smart speakers are always recording them. They record everything. That's what they're afraid of. But fortunately, that's not what happens. Nothing registers <clears throat> until these devices hear the wake-up word, either Alexa or Hey Google, wake-up commands. Only then does it start recording to take an action on what you're saying. Without those wake-up commands, anything you say is in one ear and out the other. Uh, hearing, hearing is not the same as understanding, just like listening is not the same as recording. When it comes to actually recognizing the wake-up command, Amazon uses neural network training. It trains an algorithm to recognize different instances of the wake-up word Alexa. And Google Assistant does something similar. Now, whenever it's listening and it's running the algorithm, that algorithm is located locally in your device. So when it's listening for Alexa, it doesn't send anything back to Google or to, um, or, or to Amazon. It listens locally, and it doesn't do anything unless it hears the wake-up call, and it does that with a local neural net-trained algorithm within the device. As soon as it, you start waking it up, though, it starts sending whatever you're going to say back to Amazon or back to Google, and it is recorded. Uh, but the, the device is not listening to you on a regular on a regular basis. Now, both Amazon and um, Google have said that people can listen to these requests because they like to make the devices better. So they'll listen in to see whether uh, the, the right action was taken, whether it's working correctly. But the good news is that both Google and Amazon now let you see exactly what has been recorded in requests that you've made, and you can delete all of it from the web. So there is a degree of protection there. So it's not really as bad as you think. So uh, I've got them all over the place, and I love them, and I don't think it's that great of a threat. So listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, northwest of Washington and southwest of uh, D.C. You can hear us on 1077 FM HD 2 in Loudoun County. Tune in on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Gladys May West. Now, Gladys May West is an African-American mathematician best known for her work on satellite geodesy. Geodesy. New word. Which, which actually models the shape of the Earth. Her data was incorporated into the global positioning system. Her data allowed the GPS to be accurate. West was born 1930 as Gladys May Brown in Sutherland, Virginia. Her family was an African-American farming family in a community of sharecroppers. They basically were growing tobacco down in that area. Her mother worked at a tobacco factory, and her father was a farmer, and he also worked part-time on the railroad. West did not want to farm. <laughs> May West, Gladys did not want to farm. Good go Gladys figure. did not want to beat tobacco leaves for, into shape for cigarettes. And she said the only way she's going to get out of that community is through education. Now, her family really didn't have much money, and she, they couldn't really afford to send her to college. But she realized that in her at our high school, actually at all the high schools in the area, that the top two students would get a full scholarship to Virginia State University, a, a historically black public university. So she had to be in one of the top two slots. So she applied herself. She worked hard. And she actually um, graduated as the valedictorian, top GPA in the class. So she got a full scholarship to Virginia State University. Now, once she got there, she chose mathematics. Now, that was kind of gutsy for a woman back then in 1952. This sort of classic of a lot of these women that were sort of powerful figures back in the day. She chose mathematics. Mostly men were in her class. I mean, she, she was sort of the only woman. They looked at her. They said, look, math is not for women. You should be 
you know, studying teaching, doing something that women are supposed to be doing. But she studied math anyway. Uh, when she got out of uh, college, uh, she couldn't find a, a, a job in mathematics directly, so she taught math and science in, uh, in school, in, t in high school, for two years there in Waverly, Virginia. But she said, you know, I don't want to be a teacher. I want to be a mathematician. So she went back to college, and she got a bachelor's, she got a master's degree in mathematics from VSU in 1955. And once she got out there, she then wanted to get a job as a mathematician. So she was looking around. She, she worked for a short time as a teacher again, but, she, but that's just a short time deal. And in 1956, a year after she got her bachelor's degree, she was hired at the Naval Surface Service Warfare Center in Dahlgren, Virginia. That's down in the northern neck. That's right over the uh, bridge, right over the nice bridge, isn't it? Right over, yeah, exactly, right over the nice bridge. You know this area, Jim. That's right. Right over the nice bridge. And she was hired to work at the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Dahlgren. Now, now this was actually, so there were only four African-American employees at Dahlgren. It was almost 100% uh, uh, white. And she was one of four. And so in addition to being uh, sort of breaking the racial barrier, she also broke the uh, the gender barrier. I mean, a woman being hired in to work on mathematics at that time was absolutely unheard of. In the South? But she did it. Now, she was... Uh, she met her husband there. He, he was uh, he was an African-American man who was also a mathematician. They were married in 1957. Now, West was a programmer. She used her math skills, and she programmed large-scale computers. Back in the day, these computers filled the entire room. They were huge, huge computers. And uh, so she programmed these large-scale computers, and she was also project manager for data processing systems used to analyze satellite data. This was, this was how she sort of stepped into the whole GPS area. She would analyze the, the satellite data. Um, and she was, uh, she was such a good programmer, and she worked so fast that they gave her more and more and more responsibility. Now, while she was doing that job, she decided to get another master's degree, and she got a master's degree in public administration from the University of Oklahoma. Now, her first big project in calculation was in, the er it was in the early 60s. She participated in a study that proved that Pluto had regular motion relative to the planet Neptune. I mean, this was they're trying to figure, is Pluto a planet or not? So she was analyzing the, uh, the, uh, the movement of Pluto, and, and, and so she did that with, she applied her mathematics to that project. Now, she then began studying data from satellites. This was, the, this was the big crux of her major work. Satellite data from satellite data, and then she would put together, combine that with altimeter models of the Earth's shape. So she was actually using satellite data to try to determine the shape of the Earth. Now that field of study is called geodesy, if you're trying to study the shape of the Earth. Because the Earth, because it's spinning, it's bigger at the equator because of centrifugal force. So it's an ellipsoid 
with irregularities, irregularities being, of course, mountains and valleys and that sort of thing. And so, but in order to really accurately use this data in terms of, you know, getting position, you had to know where, you know, you had to know the shape of the earth relative to the satellites that were going around the, uh, around the, um, around the, uh, the world. Now she, um, she, in 1979, she got accommodation for her work. Her teams, actually, uh, she worked so hard to make them efficient. Her teams typically could beat other teams with, in projects by, by, by a factor of two. I mean, she, her teams were extremely efficient. Now, she was, uh, and so she was, uh, by the 80s, she was, uh, you know, she's up on IBM computers then, and she was calculating the world, on uh, calculating the shape of the world with this geodesy. Uh, in this field of geodesy, yeah, and, you know, I had to look how to pronounce that, Jim. I'd never, I really don't use the word geodesy that often. It, it doesn't come up it's at not, the cocktail parties. It, you know, it just really doesn't. Uh, but you know, I think when next time I go to a cocktail party, I, I'll, I, I now got a word to clear the buffet. I was going to say uh, the cocktail franks will be all yours. Yeah, that's right. Once I start talking about geodesy, they say, "Well, that's good. I got to go to the other room now <laughs> or home." You know, and, <laughs> talk to somebody else. <laughs> right. So, so what she did, she used very complex algorithms to account for variations in gravitational, tidal, and other forces that distort the shape of the Earth. Now, they needed that data to make GPS accurate because, I mean, GPS basically uses the distance of a point on Earth from three satellites. But what they do, because they also they, they also want to derive time from the satellites, they use four satellites. But for that to work, you've got to know exactly the shape of the Earth. If you don't know that, right. your GPS calculations are, are not going to be that accurate. And the military wants GPS accuracy of like down to the fraction of an inch. And you've got to have absolutely accurate data. And it turned out the data that she had generated through her modeling was so accurate that it allowed GPS systems to be accurate. Now, in 1986, West published the data processing system specifications for Geosat satellite radar or altimeter. It was a 51-page report. That's where she laid out what she did to, to make these calculations. This guide was published to explain how to increase the accuracy of the estimation of heights and vertical deflections which were important to satellite geodesy. Now, she retired in 1998, a year after her husband, and the two of them traveled to New Zealand and Australia. Here's what happened, though. Five months after her retirement, West had a stroke that impaired her hearing and her vision and balance and use of her right side. Now, she and her husband started taking classes at the King George YMCA to rebuild her strength and recover her mobility, which she'd lost after the stroke. But she was really not deterred. Gladys, she was laying in bed one day, and she said, you know, I can't stay in bed and feel sorry for myself. So she decided to get her Ph.D., and she started working on her Ph.D. in public administration from Virginia Tech. And in 2018, she received that Ph.D. So a lot of people after a stroke that's debilitating just give up. 
not Gladys. She just climbs to the next height. That's, that's one thing that's exceptional about this woman. She never stepped back from a challenge. Gladys White was inducted into the Air Force Space and Missile Pioneers Hall of Fame in 2018. She was inducted into the United States Air Force Hall of Fame in 2018. This is one of the highest awards that the Air Force Space Command can bestow on anyone. A press release at the time called her one of the so-called hidden workers who did computing for the U.S. military in the background before we had large-scale electronic systems. West was selected by BBC as part of the 100 women of 2018. Now, here's the thing. West continues to use a paper map (laughs) over GPS tracking system. She said it, she says she still trusts her brain and maps more than more than GPS. Well, you know, and, I I kind of like a map too because you can fold it out and you get more of a sense of perspective than you can from the small screen of a GPS. No, that's true. I mean, if you follow GPS all the time, you, you really can't get anywhere on your own because you don't you don't know how everything fits together. Right, yeah. That well. No, that's true. But this this tendency to rely on paper maps perplexes her children who have fully embraced GPS navigation systems. <laughs> so there you know, there you've got it. Everything you'd want to know about Gladys May West, the mathematician known for her work on satellite geodesy that became the basis of accurate GPS data. Fascinating. Hope you're paying attention because what you just learned could win you free lunch. Stand by for the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio, heard on uh, every Saturday on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, 107.7 FM HD2 south of Washington, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew 
Camacho, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate all of that applause. But this is not simply a radio show. Yeah. This is a classroom of the airways. Now, and we test whether you've been learning as a class with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining uh, from one of our uh, dining rooms as soon as they open after the pandemic. pandemic, And you'll get uh, an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in this show, I was talking about Gladys Mae West. She, of course, is a uh, mathematician, and she worked at uh, in Dahlgren, the, uh, at the uh, weapons center there, and she programmed a computer, uh, spent a lot of time programming a computer. What was the purpose of all of her programming, and what was she calculating? If you know the answer to today's question, well, now is your chance to show us just how knowledgeable you are. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a pile of calcium chloride east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're calibrating your GPS in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using Prestone windshield deicer, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Well, thank you. Let's have the uh, tip of the week. Yes, please. Now, this is the iPhone virtual trackpad mode. Let me explain this. Have you ever been trying, like you write an email with your iPhone, and you you got that little keyboard down on the bottom, yeah. and then you see that you've got made a, misspelled a word, and you've got to go back in the middle of the paragraph. So you've got to take your finger and move the cursor back, and sometimes it's really hard to get that cursor back at the right place. For one thing, it's right underneath your finger, so you can't quite see where yes. it's going. Well, it turns out there is a track. You can create a trackpad right on the screen of your iPhone. And um, it's very easy to do. There's a. Uh, uh, it turns out there, there, there are two ways to get into it. Depends whether your iPhone's got uh, 3D touch. Some of the older iPhones still had 3D touch. The newer iPhones, they got rid of it. If your phone, one of the older phones, going back to uh, iPhone 8, uh, I think might have been the last one with 3D Touch, uh, you just basically press on the keyboard, activate the 3D Touch, press a little harder, and the whole keyboard will turn into a trackpad. And you can move your finger around the keyboard, and the cursor will move up in the paragraph. And as soon as you're done, just stop. Take your finger off the pad, and the cursor will stay where it was. Now, if you've got a newer phone that does not have 3D touch, that's what I have, you're basic, basically writing. The keyboard is down at the bottom. Basically, put your finger on the space bar, hold it there, and after a couple of seconds, you'll see the letters disappear from the keyboard. At that moment, you're in the trackpad mode, and you can move your finger around the keyboard and you'll see the cursor moving around up there, and you simply lift your finger off, and the cursor is is, is spaced is placed perfectly. I've been used. I, I discovered this thing, uh, you know, 
this last week, and I've been using it, and it is so convenient to go to use this trackpad mode. So I thought I'd make that the tip of the week. I'm glad you found it because in pandemic world, I've been using this a lot more as well, and I've I've encountered this problem. So it's a good thing that you found it, Doc. Somebody would like to play the show. Let's okay, uh, very good. Go to the phones. We're going to go now to line number one. This is MC calling us from Silver Spring. Good morning, MC. How are you? Yeah, good morning, Jim. All is well. Good, good. morning, Doc. Got, okay, Doc, good ask morning. the question, please. Uh, earlier in the show, I talked about Gladys May West. She programmed the IBM computers. What was the purpose of all of her programming? Uh, she was actually measuring the distance of the Earth, uh, which uh, resulted in the uh, use of uh, GPUs for GPS, the development of GPS. Very good. Essay question once again. MC, thanks a lot for checking in. Stay safe this uh, icy Saturday morning in D.C. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2 in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. You can also hear us on uh, southern, uh, the southern suburbs at 1077 FM HD2. Back in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Bitcoin has surged past $48,000. Now, Bitcoin hit an intraday record of $48,000. $297 at 8.30 a.m. on February 11th, 2021. It's up more than 60% since the start of the year after quadrupling in value in 2020. So, so it has been on a tear for so the last year. That's the cost of one Bitcoin? Yes. Isn't that out of a lot of people's reach? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so what's the it point? Is, but but you can what's you can actually point? trade in 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 pieces of a bitcoin. Okay. You don't have to buy a whole bitcoin. Okay. <clears throat> now BNY Mellon, America's oldest bank and a major custody provider, said on that day on the 11th that they would begin financing bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, and they would eventually allow crypto assets to pass through the same financial network that it currently used for other traditional holdings like U.S. Treasury bonds and equities. 
So what is happening is that the traditional financial institutions are now recognizing Bitcoin, and that is driving the price through the roof. Now, the other thing that's driving up the price, it's it's harder and harder to mine Bitcoin. First of all, uh, there are the number of Bitcoin that uh, can that will be available is fixed. There's a fixed limit. And as we issue more and more Bitcoins, subsequent Bitcoins are harder to calculate and they're more expensive to calculate. So that is pushing that process just naturally pushes the price of Bitcoin up. But now that financial services are moving in on this thing, uh, Bitcoin is really going up. Now, the day before, MasterCard said would it, it would offer support for some cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, on its network later this year. Then three days earlier, get this, Tesla bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. And they said they would accept it as a form of payment. Elon Musk is all in on Bitcoin. He's, he thinks that is the real deal. And he put $1.5 billion investment into Bitcoin. Now, skeptics worry that Bitcoin may be one of the largest bubbles in history and that it has no real intrinsic value like, you know, polished shells that the Indians use and that it, <laughs> its value will, you know, will fade. Yeah. So I'm, I don't think I would put $1.5 billion in Bitcoin, but I'm certainly going to yeah. enjoy watching this, watching this uh, progress to see where it goes. I was going to say, this is still pretty risky for, for most of us, isn't it? It is. Yep. It is. It is still pretty risky. I forgot to do something. Now, I forgot to do something out of the break, Doc. Here it is. We got our observations from oh, the bunker. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. I wondered about that. You know, I'm yeah. down here in this bunker, and I thought, why? Why am I down here if I can't even get the segment going? Well, <laughs> I think Marianne has had standing orders to keep you down there. Uh, exactly right. I'm not allowed out. You're not. So uh, I started thinking this week about, you know, education. I'm in education. And, uh, you know, I went back and I reviewed Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity. I just love this book. I, I, I mean, a the, the end of it's a little bit wacky, but uh, the, the first two thirds, he documents how things are changing at an exponential rate and that you know, what we see today is not going to be the same tomorrow. And it's, and it's changing so fast that people can't keep up with it. Uh, and that AI, robotics, and uh, molecular engineering are going to change everything as we know it. And they're changing it extremely fast. So what what should an educational institution do? Because if you, if you only give students hard skills... Um, those hard skills will be obsolete in 10 years because all the jobs will be different. So what what do you really want to give students that will last a lifetime and will, will really uh, ensure that they will always be relevant and always be employable and always be productive members of society? Well, there are five things that we try to do and try to embed in our programs at Stratford. Uh, you know, some of these ideas came from our campus in India, and these are all, I believe, extremely important. Number one is having a growth mindset. And you do you can only do that by giving students projects that are difficult, challenging, so when the student completes it, they say, man, look what I did. Something that, that they're not sure they could do. If you have a growth mindset, you don't fear failure because you realize that even if you do fail, you'll learn from it, you'll be better the next time, you'll just keep getting better. So you don't fear taking on really challenging tasks. 
So, like, it, like, for instance, uh, I started thinking about this when I was talking earlier in the show. When I, you know, doing research on Gladys, Gladys Mae West. She came from a sharecropper's family, but her parents gave her a growth mindset. She, she said, "Look, I'm just going to become valedictorian so I can get to college." She got to college. I'm going to, I'm just going to go in mathematics, even though that's what men want to do. Then when she wanted to get, she didn't want to teach. She said, I'm going to go and work at Dahlgren in, in the mathematics department and calculate, your, uh, you know, satellite orbits. I mean, she was always taking the high, the, the tough road, the challenging road that would, that likely would lead to some failure, but she didn't fear it. So her parents gave her a growth mindset. That's why she was so successful. The second skills that people need are critical thinking. Now, what this means, that's a, that's, that's a shorthand for how do you think through a problem that you've never seen before? You know, it's not in a book. You don't know the answer. There's, there's nobody to go. It's, it's something you've never seen before. So how do, you, how do you think about it? How do you solve a problem like that? Well, there's a process you go through. You say, well, what am I trying to accomplish here? What data do I need? How to analyze the data? What conclusions can I draw? What are the implications of the conclusion? These are all elements of what scientists have learned to call the scientific method. And, uh, and the best way to do that, to teach that, is by asking questions. So a teacher will ask questions, and he'll help the students think through the problem on their own. And if, if he asks the right questions, the students discover the critical thinking process. And there are eight elements of critical thinking. And that's, that is, by the way, what Socrates did back on the sidewalks of, Fran, of Athens back 2,500 years ago when he was uh, talking to the youth of Athens and, and getting them, actually, getting them to question the city politicians and getting them the youth to question their parents. I mean, that's why he eventually was you know, sentenced to death yeah, because they no. thought he was inciting insurrection. But there he was go. teaching by asking questions. And that became known as the Socratic method. But he was teaching them critical thinking. And he was teaching them to go through the elements of critical thinking. So everybody has to have a critical thinking mindset so they know how to approach problems they've never seen before. The next thing is all students have to have communication skills. You got to be able to write, got to be able to speak. And because everything is teamwork. Now, solos, solo activity is just not going to be that successful. So you have to be able to communicate to bring people along. Communication skills will make certain you're relevant at all times. You have to be able to be a mindful leader. Now, we all know you've had jerks in your life. And uh, there are, you, know, you, 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 know, you know, you know, a, a leader who's a jerk. He bosses people around. He takes all the credit. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, but that kind of a boss is not going to have teams that excel. So a mindful leader is somebody, first of all, he can feel his own emotions. And there's something magic that happens with mindfulness. If you can feel your own emotions, you start becoming very sensitized to what other people need. And so a mindful leader can sort of sense what his team needs. And he gives them, he, he augments them so that he can see where, where they need support and where they can excel. And he provides the support so that each team member can be successful. And then the mindful leader has the humility to step back when the team succeeds 
and give the team credit. It's like he's almost invisible. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of mindful leaders out there who uh, whose teams excel. And Tom Collins in Good to Great, this is where he analyzed companies that went from good and then to great. He says, what was the thing? He said they had level five leaders. And a prerequisite of being a level five leader is being mindful. So schools need to teach this. Uh, it goes a long way in terms of being able to uh, succeed in working with teams. Then the last thing, oh, this mindfulness focus really came from our campus in India because in India, uh, they really do understand mindfulness, yoga, the inner self, and it's extremely important. Now, the last thing that I think is important uh, for long-term success in a changing world is knowing how to be happy. This also came from uh, from our campus in India. Uh, I mean, schools should really teach this. Uh, How many people go after the wrong objectives? They think they want to get the biggest salary, the biggest house. They just seek you know, uh, financial success or status. But very quickly you realize, no matter how big your house is, somebody has a bigger one. No matter how much money you have, somebody earns more than you. So if you define yourself in terms of possessions, you'll never be happy. And in India, uh, it's everybody there realizes it. And, uh, many, many people around the world do. The only way to be happy is to give to others. So like a mindful leader is giving to his team. And so he derives happiness out of their success. So if you know what it means to be happy or how to define happiness for yourself, it allows you to set proper goals for yourself and for your company, for your team. And that will ensure long-term success. So Don't you think if that's... a person has a growth mindset, has the ability to think through a problem they've never seen before, critical thinking, has good communication skills, can exhibit mindful leader capabilities, mindful leader skills, and knows how to define goals so that you will achieve happiness, they will be successful no matter how fast the world changes. Don't you think the happiness part of that is the hardest thing? Because that's so personality-driven. It is hard to teach somebody what happiness is and how to achieve it. Well, what what you do is that uh, – so what <clears> – <throat> You have projects, like in our mindful leader, mindful leadership class, we'll have projects where you actually have to give, have to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the only way to do it is to experience it, to tell yeah. you the truth, Jim. Yeah, true. And you, you help somebody else and you say, wow, that made me feel good. I mean, nobody can tell you that. Yep. So the schools have to, that, that's where the, there are a lot of, a lot of schools will have projects where the kids will go out and work on projects to help the community. Boy Scouts have that. They'll have projects to help the community, Girl Scouts. And then you feel good when you're doing something that, that helps the, 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 you know, the greater, the greater community. So you teach it through projects and people discover it on their own, but it is important. And I don't think schools should forget it. So let's talk about Canada. Yes. Because Canada, of course, is, you know, Mr. Big Voice. He just loves Canada. Well, it's our 51st he, state after all. Yeah. He, I mean, he references everything against, well, what do they do in Canada? You know, he does. Yeah. He, 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 well, he says, well, what would they do in Canada? I think we need to check his papers. He might be Canadian. 
I think that's where this you all know, comes from. That might be the issue. That might be the issue. Well, Canada has done something that we have not done in the U.S. Canada has approved the world's first Bitcoin ETF. ETF is an ex exchange-traded fund. It makes it very easy now to get into the Bitcoin business with this ETF. Now, and you're, you're, you're investing into directly into physically settled Bitcoin, not Bitcoin derivatives. Now, investors have been able to trade in Bitcoin futures for a while on the uh, on the uh, on the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission up there in Canada, uh, but those were always some sort of derivative feature. Now they can do, invest in Bitcoin directly. You can also buy closed-end investment funds such as the Bitcoin Fund on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Now in the United States, we've tried to do that. Um, we've tried to do that. Eight eight firms have tried to. Uh, to do this in the, in the U.S. and failed because the SEC simply does not want, does not trust Bitcoin. They think that there would be uh, very hard to do custody audits, verify the fund, and so they're reluctant to do anything officially on the, uh, on the stock exchange with Bitcoins. But Canada's moved ahead and they're doing it again as quickly as they can. Now, let me just quickly, let's see, what do I got? A few minutes here. You got about yeah, a minute. There was some guy who shamed AT&T to give him faster internet. He was totally teed off. He had a three megabit per second a DSL link that AT&T gave him, and it was so slow. He took out a quarter page ad in the Wall Street Journal for $10,000, <laughs> and he wrote a letter to the CEO. Then all of a sudden, he was interviewed on cable television. It went viral. There was, there was an interview on ours, and the thing just went ballistic. Within a week, AT&T installed the fiber optic at his house. He got a personal call from the CEO. So that guy stuck it to AT&T and got what he wanted for only yep. $10,000. Yep. Listen, we love for emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And check out our programs at the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. And tell about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.